Grab your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 26 as we continue our study together. Uh, today actually marks a, uh, a big milestone for our study. Uh, how many chapters are there in Genesis? Anyone know off the top of their head? 50. Today's 26. That means we are in the halfway point. So only four more years to go. It's going to be great. So um, no, I'm just kidding. So it seems like it's a, uh, we, we started back in September of last year. And uh, so now we, it seems to be making a pretty good pace. Um, but as you know, uh, here at Refuge, we take uh, what we call expository preaching very seriously, where we typically take a, a book of the Bible and march verse by verse through that book. Reason we do that is because it doesn't let us skip the hard stuff. Uh, we want to simply preach to you what God has already revealed to us in his perfect word, right? Y'all shouldn't care what I think. You should care what God thinks, what God has already told us. So we feel like it's our job as pastors to simply tell you what God has already revealed to us in his word. And so I hope that we do that faithfully even this morning. And, uh, and it looks like that now we're going through the Old Testament passages. It might not be verse by verse, but more narrative by narrative. Uh, so we're covering more. And if you were with us in Romans, you know, sometimes we would have uh, a whole sermon on one verse or half of a verse. Uh, today we're going through the entire ver- uh, chapter of 26. So it looks a little bit different, but same methodology that we're using. Because again, we want you to see what God has already revealed to us uh, in chap- in, uh, today in Genesis chapter 26. So... Um, and uh, we loved walking through that because we get to savor those flavors that God gives us, like a good steak, right? And, uh, and today is no, no different. There's a lot of really great flavors here in chapter 26 that I want to make sure you don't miss. So um, I heard this story one time that I want to share with you guys. There was a, there was a Christian school uh, here in town that had this big lunch spread uh, for all their students. And it was a big, long table covered in food. And they had all the stuff students need, right? They have sandwiches and pickles and fruit and apples and oranges and drinks and all that kind of stuff, right? So everything a young student needs. But also, at the end of this table was a big old plate of cookies, right? So of course, they don't need that, but it's nice to have for students, right? So the students all got their lunch. They all did what they got to do. And then the teachers, now it's their turn to start getting lunch. And so there's this one teacher. She starts going down the line and picking up a sandwich, grabbing grabbing some plate, a napkin, fork, and then she gets to the bowl of apples. And she sees there's a sign on that bowl of apples, it's probably written by the, by the lunch, uh, the kitchen staff that says, God is watching, take only one. Okay, so she kind of smiled, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure about that, so she grabs an apple, keeps on going. Then she gets to this big plate. She assumed it was a plate of cookies, but there's only crumbs left on it. And underneath that plate, she saw, hastily written in crayon, take as many as you want, God's watching the apples. <laughs> so, um, all right, I'll see y'all later. So. I love good jokes. If you know me, I love a good dad joke, and that's one of my solid gold ones, so you're welcome, all right? So, but the reason I say that is because we know that those students that watch that plate of cookies, we know that, uh, that they're a little bit wrong in that, because we know, based on what we see in Scripture, that they're, uh, they're, all of the universe is filled with God's presence. So yes, that bowl of apples, but also the plate of cookies. God was watching that too, so those kids might be in trouble. So, uh, but we also know that God is present with all of his being everywhere in the, um, in the universe. And, but where those kids also got it wrong is that God isn't just watching, waiting to bring the hammer down on people who mess up. So for those of you here this morning, I want you to know that God isn't watching just to wait for you to mess up. Because here's the thing, you mess up all the time. You do. Not me, just y'all. So all of you, we mess up all the time. But God isn't waiting to bring the hammer down because the good news is that we have Jesus who took that hammer for us. Amen? Amen. So, we, so the presence of God is with us all the time. And I want you to know this, that the presence of God 
is the prize. The presence of God isn't a means to an end. That's what we get. We get the presence of God. And it's amazing that we get it, the presence of God, whether it's what we'll see here in chapter 26, the presence of God, the Father who's providing for Isaac and for his wife and for the people sojourning there. We'll also, we also know that ultimately we get the presence of God by God the Son who came and died for our sins, which we know is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise we'll look at today. And we also know that as Christians, we get the presence of God the Spirit who is indwelling in us as believers in Jesus. That's good, good news. So, just like those, so those kids who were watching the cookies, they might get a little bit wrong, but I want you to know that the presence of God is a good thing. And I want you to be reminded of that this morning, that God, what he wants is he wants presence with his people, with his children, and we get that today. All right, chapter 26. Um, now, what, before I read, though, I want us to pray together, because one, even though chapter 26, this is a long chapter that we're going to read together, but I want to make sure that you're remembering, and I want us to be in a state of mind as we read this, what did we already discuss? What is this book? This is the very word of God. So as we're reading this, some of you might be really familiar with it. Scott talked about that last week. But don't let your familiarity with something rob you of its beauty. So as, we're reading, as I'm reading chapter 26, as you're following along with me, um, just remember, this is the very word of God. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and will establish the oath I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and I will give you your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar, where the men of the place asked him about his wife. He said, she is my sister, for, she feared, uh, for he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest, these men, uh, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. When she had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of my people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that year uh, in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And he had possessions of the flocks and the herds of many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with the earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after death of Abraham. And the and he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek. Because they contended with him, then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also, and he, also, and he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For the Lord has made room for us and shall be fruitful to, in the land. 
From there, he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ezra, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just that you have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and he said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba for this day, uh, to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, his daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Again, this is the very word of God. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for all of it. Uh, thank you for the New Testament and the Old Testament. God, thank you for showing us these 66 books that we have that point to your glory, that teach us about you, who you are, what you've done, who we are, and what we are in light of what you have done, God. God, this, we know that all of this um, is a grand narrative of your love for your people and how you have endeavored to save them. And so, God, today, as we are looking at Genesis chapters 1 and 26, let us see your love for us. Let us see what you have done for us. Let us see how it's not of our own power, but your providence and your love for your children that allows us to do anything. We love you. Teach us in this moment. I pray this in your name. Amen. So, real quick, uh, just so I know who my people are, who were um, in school, English was your favorite class. Anyone? Okay, so English nerds out there. Okay, good. So I got a couple of English nerds with me. Those are my people. And uh, so I need to ask those guys of you. In English, the English language, there are three tenses uh, for how we know whether we're speaking. What are the three tenses of the English language? Right. Past, present, and future is where we're at. So uh, today we're going to look at the past, present, and future. In chapter 26, we see how God was operating in Isaac's past, Isaac's present, and Isaac's future. And we're going to look at that, why it was good news not only for Isaac back in chapter 26, but we're also going to look about why that's good news for us today. And one of the things, I mean, you probably noticed as we were reading it, 26 is actually kind of a little bit of an odd chapter. It jumps around just a little bit. So I'm going to need to make sure everyone's paying attention extra close as we kind of follow this narrative, because I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, just, um, just a tad. Uh, that way we can kind of keep up with what's going on. So is everyone with me? I will call you out if you're falling asleep, okay? So be ready for that. All right, so... Well, let's look at the first uh, five verses here in chapter 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar and Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go out to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will uh, be with you and bless you. For you and your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and I will give to you your offspring all these lands, and in your offsprings all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So we find ourselves in yet another famine 
uh, and we find Isaac is heading back towards Egypt. And then God stops him and says, don't go to Egypt. Stay in the land of Gerar, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. So this is where we see our first, uh, our first score for our English nerds. We're talking about the, pre- uh, the future uh, uh, for that. So we see here um, in uh, verses 3 and 4, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and all your offspring, I will give all these things in these lands, and I will establish the oath I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and will give to you your offspring all these lands." And in your offspring, all the nations of earth shall be blessed. So we see these future promises that, um, that God is reminding Isaac of. And th- so what did we see Isaac reminding, uh, or what do we see God reminding Isaac of in that? Did, this, did, did these verses sound a little familiar? Yeah, what he's doing is this, this is a promise passed down. We know that these words that he uses, specifically right here, I will multiply your offspring as the star of the heaven. He's reminding him of the promise that God made with Abraham. And now we see explicitly God is choosing to continue that promise. Now, not from Abraham, but through his son Isaac. Which, of course, we know that Isaac himself is part of the fulfillment of that promise, right? Because we know that when God was making this promise to Abraham, his wife at the time was unable to have kids. And so we know that Isaac himself, hearing these words again, is already the beginning of God fulfilling that promise. But we know it's not completely fulfilled yet. It's now here that we see another not so common, not so uncommon occurrence in Scripture. I mean, sometimes the promises of God outlive us. So let me ask you this Do you pray for things bigger than yourself? Do you pray for things that might outlive you? I mean, the promise of God was, uh, that God gave to Abraham was a little bit fulfilled in him, but the birth of his son, but we all know that the ultimate fulfillment of these verses that we see was the birth of the son, Jesus, Savior of the world. We know that's the ultimate fulfillment, and that wouldn't come for generations later. Do you pray for things bigger than yourself? One example that I've read with some friends recently is uh, in his book, Reappearing Church, Mark Sayers, pastor at a church down there called the Red Church, recounts of um, actually a renewal that broke out in his hometown of Melbourne, Australia. And uh, as he started kind of looking, he's a little bit of a, um, a church historian, as he started looking at where did the roots of this renewal start in Melbourne, where, where many, many people were coming to salvation, coming to saving faith of Jesus, where did this start? he found that there was a group of men and women who had been praying for revival in that city for over 50 years. Some of those men and women who were praying didn't get to see the renewal that would come. But did that make their prayers worthless? Of course not. Of course not. What if your prayers aren't answered in your lifetime? That doesn't make them ineffective. That doesn't make them a waste of time. And one thing that I have for us One real-world example that you can start today is, let me ask you this question. How do you disciple your kids? How do you pray for your kids? Do you make it a regular practice for you and your spouse to pray with and over your kids? Because that's a legacy that will outlive you. Whether it's your kids or your grandkids or whatever that looks like, that legacy will last past your lifetime most likely. And what legacy do you want to leave with them? Would you rather them know your name and the cool stuff you did, or would you rather them know the name of Jesus and discipling them 
and showing them that it's not I am who great, it's greater than Jesus. I keep pointing to a cross over here. It's not, I got moved back there. But that's, um, the, uh, what's greater is Jesus who died on the cross. That is a great example of how we can today start leaving a legacy that will outlive us, praying for our kids and with our kids and discipling them well. And if you need help in doing that, let us know. Grab someone that you trust, talk to us, and we would love to help you disciple your kids well or disciple them better. And not to say that we have all the answers, but if we're a church family, we get to figure it out together. So let's, let's do that together. So if discipling your kids is of utmost importance. So I want to make sure that we, we don't miss that as we're going through here. Because guess what? God keeps his promises, Amen. right? We've been talking about that a lot over the last couple of weeks. God keeps his promises. And look what we see here in verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. God already started to carry out his promises to Abraham in his lifetime. And Isaac should have no reason to believe that God was going to stop. Because God was reminding him of what he did. So this is where we see Isaac's decision and the outcome of what God has told him to do. So we're going to look at verse 6, and then we're going to skip ahead to uh, verses 12 and 13. So read with me. So Isaac settled in Gerar, and then skipping over to verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and, in, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. So Isaac followed God's guidance and settled in Gerar. And what happened? What does it say happened? He, re- he reaped a hundredfold. Now, a hundredfold of harvest isn't unheard of. Like, that happens sometimes. Um, but it's pretty rare in normal conditions. But we also see, is in verse 12, he reaped a hundredfold in that same year. And what did we know was going on in that land at the time? A famine, right? So a hundredfold, a hundredfold harvest is pretty rare in normal conditions, but in a famine? There's no way. There's no way that's possible. It was a clear indication that the Lord's blessing was on him. So again, God keeps his promises. Even this one promise that he was going to flourish him in that land that was stricken with famine. God promised to bless Isaac, and he pulled through. So now let's go back to verses 7, kind of fill in these gaps just a little bit. So again, I appreciate y'all following along with me. And let's see that even though God was keeping his promises, that Isaac's time in Gerard wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, though. So starting in verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So is it just me, or does this sound a little familiar? Like, this is kind of like a deja vu moment, right? Like, it's one of those things that's like, hang on, did did I miss something? Am I rereading the same paragraph again? Um, This should sound familiar because this is actually almost verbatim the same thing that Isaac's father, Abraham, did back back in chapter 20. And some could say that he should know better because he probably knew that story, but he did it nonetheless for whatever reason. He went through the same ruse that his father did, fearing for his life. 
And we see that in chapter 20, the Lord uh, actually goes to ki- uh, then King Abimelech in a dream to say, hey, that's not his sister, that's his wife, and protects him that way. And here in chapter 26, King Abimelech, which, by the way, we don't know if it's the same Abimelech or like his grandson or something, but that doesn't matter. But um, it just happens to see them outside a window. So either way you look at it, the king finds out that he is lying. And just so you know, this is kind of a funny little uh, side note that... Um, that it says that the king Abimelech saw, knew that Isaac and Rebekah were married because Isaac was laughing with her. Uh, that seems pretty innocent, though, does it not? I mean, does that mean any woman that I'm laughing with, which I like to laugh, uh, automatically assumes that I'm married to her? That's not what's going on here. So what's actually really interesting about this, and this is just me nerding out, so please indulge me, is uh, when you look at the word laughing in Hebrew, it's actually a play on words with Isaac's name. Does anyone know what Isaac's name in Hebrew actually means? Yeah, son of laughter, right? So he's using this, uh, the writer uh, here in uh, Genesis is using this as almost as a little bit of an innuendo. In other words, um, in other words Isaac was being himself with his, right, with his wife. And uh, just kind of not to put too fine a point on it, how can somebody be themselves with their spouse where an accidental onlooker must assume that they're married? I'm just going to let your imagination run wild with that one, okay? So, but all we know is that whatever they were doing, it was very clear they were married, okay? Get your minds out of the gutter, y'all. Come on. All right, this is church, all right? So, the word of God. So, yeah, we know that this, that's what's going on. Uh, but all that to say that whether through a dream of, with Father Abraham or through the accidental onlooking with the son of Isaac, this sin of lying was found out. Like father, like son, I guess. But despite Isaac's sin, God still keeps his promises. Do y'all ever see that? I mean, raise your hand if you're a mess like me. Is God still faithful to you? Of course he is. God is still faithful despite our messiness. Despite the sin that honestly he should have known better because the same thing his dad did, God is still faithful. God still fills his promises. God still kept his promises. And Abimelech here calls out Isaac. In verse 9 and 10, we see that he goes to him and calls him out. What a sad day it is when the culture outside of the household of faith calls out the wickedness of those within it. That's sad. I mean, are, especially the, the, these people here in, in Genesis, are they not supposed to be a people set apart? That's why their very existence, their very steadfastness in the face of adversity is designed to point to the glory of God. So how, how would do you say we're doing on that scores card today? How often do we see Christians being blasted on the news for their wickedness? It happens a lot. And I'm not here to point fingers because I'm telling you right now, I'm no better than those people. I'm no better than those headlines. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. But let me ask you this just to kind of, as a, somewhat of an introspective exercise, how often are the social media posts of churchgoers dripping with gossip, slander, malice, and cruelty? If you were to go and look at your own posts on social media, what would people see? What would they think of you as a Christian? Again, I'm not saying that to point fingers. I know that's something I have to be guarded with because it's something I fail at often. But I do need to give you a warning. The world is watching. They are. Just like Abimelech was looking at Isaac, the world is watching. 
and they're waiting for Christians to mess up. And it's no secret that non-Christians assume that Christians are holier than thou. They're make, uh, thinking that they're better than everyone, right? I mean, I'm sure that's no, no secret to anyone, right? So let me let you in on another little secret. Have, did you all know that people generally like to know that they're right? Did you all, were you all aware of that? People like to find information that confirms what they already want to believe. Did you all know that? So food for thought, right? But what I want you to know is when anything happens to confirm those assumptions that Christians are holier than thou, hypocrites, they're going to jump on it like a fly on stink. It's going to happen, okay? See, I, I knew they were no different than us. Everyone always thinking they're better than us. They're just as messed up as the rest of us. What a bunch of hypocrites. But here's another little secret. They're right. <laughs> we are a bunch of hypocrites, especially you guys, especially Dawson. We're all a bunch of hypocrites, Okay? We're all a bunch of hypocrites. It's true. And the world doesn't understand the hope that's within us, though. We know that it's not because of how great I am. It's because of how great Jesus is. That why I get to do anything, why I get to stand here, why I get to talk to people, why we get to be a family isn't because of anything great we did, because of how great Jesus is. And because of despite my messiness, he chose to save me. So here's the deal. The, the only thing that makes us as a people set apart is when we preach Christ crucified. Okay, So when you're getting out in the public, whether it be physically or digitally, remember that you are representing Jesus in that sphere. As someone who professes to be a Christian, you are teaching people what it looks like to follow Jesus. And you might even be teaching them what it looks like for them to follow Jesus too. So please take that seriously and guard your words in the public sphere because you are, as a professing Christian, people are watching you, waiting for you. And the only way you can make it worth their while is when you point them not to how great you are, but how great Jesus is. At the end of the day, we're just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Amen? It's not about how great we are. It's about how great Jesus is. All right, that's for free. All right, let me get back to this. So in, uh, in verse 14, we pick up and, and see where we're going. So verse 14 through 15. I'm sorry, verse 14 through, um, through 22. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth with all the wells that the fathers of servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of the father that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that the father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley around there a well of spring of water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So they called the name of it Isaac, because they contended with him. By the way, Isaac actually in Hebrew means the word contending. And then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, and he called his name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth saying, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in that land. So with his wealth and power, Isaac now has, because of the Lord blessing, Abimelech asks him to leave, threatened by his wealth and his power. So he settles away in the valley of Gerar, and, and one of the first things you need to establish when you're establishing a long-term encampment is you need to dig a well. This is, by the way, this is an example of what it might have looked like uh, in that time. And uh, so he tried to dig out some of the old wells that have been filled in. We see in verse 20. But every time they seem to, to dig a well, the, the, 
the locals in that area would fight over it and tell them to go away. So they dug a second one, same result. They quarreled with them and took it from them and asked them to go. And then finally, a third time, they dig another well, find water, and they're able to keep it this time. And uh, they name it Rehoboth, which actually can be translated to the word room. Because we see in verse 22 that Jacob praises the Lord, for now the Lord has made room for us, hence the name, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So um, what's the deal with all the wells, right? This seems like a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, column inches to, to fill up with talking about wells. Like what's, why, why is God emphasizing this so much? And the reason I think the Lord highlights this is to emphasize the same point that God has already emphasized for us. It's the same thing that, it's the same point he was making when he points out that Isaac got a hundredfold harvest in the time of a famine. Because after all, uh, we, we, we have no reason to believe that that famine has ended yet. And just like a hundredfold harvest, it's not rare to find a hundredfold harvest. Um, uh, and it's not rare to dig a well and find fresh water. But it's really rare to find one, especially in a, in a, um, within a famine. But how many wells did he find? He found three of them, right? So, so not only is it rare to find one well within a famine, but to find three wells in the midst of a famine, again, just like a hundredfold harvest, it's un doubtingly the providence of the Lord over these people. So a hundredfold harvest, wells, it's clear that God's hand is over these people. So what have we learned about God's promises over the last several weeks? God keeps his promises. He does. God keeps his promises. Now, um, actually, in my, uh, in my notes right here, I titled this Broken Record, because I'm sure you're, t- you're tired of hearing that, right? Or maybe not tired, but I'm sure you're hearing this a lot. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And we've seen this theme over and over throughout Genesis. And news for you, we're going to see this all throughout the Old Testament. God keeps his promises. But just like Pastor Scott said last week, don't let your familiarity with something rob you of its beauty. How amazing is it that God is near and not far away? It's pretty amazing, right? And how amazing is it that we have a God that not only is he near, but he interacts with us? And how amazing is it that interaction isn't cruel, but loving? And how amazing is it that God even makes promises to us? He he doesn't have to do that. And how amazing is it that he keeps those promises? It's amazing. What an amazing, awesome loving God we serve. How well does he love us? God, he, he loves us so well. And I hope that this constant refrain that you'll see all throughout Genesis and all throughout the Old Testament reminds you of his goodness. And I hope that it never, ever gets old. Kind of like a good song that you love listening to no matter how many times. Please let that be a reminder of, how, of God's goodness. So let's keep going as we pick up in verse 23. From there, he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God, oh, I'm sorry. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tents there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So now, my English nerds, this is where we see our second point. We see God talking in the present. And what, what, is, what is it that God says? I am with you. He says this, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant, 
Abraham's sake. We saw that God's promise to Isaac is what he will do. So we already talked about the future tense of what he's going to do. And by the way, did he fulfill that promise? Better believe it. Of course he did. Yeah, God keeps his promises. So we saw that he kept his promises for the future. And now we're seeing that God reminding of Isaac of what he is doing presently. And what is that that God's doing? I am with you. He was simply present with Isaac. And we need nothing else when we have the presence of God. And in a foreign land, in the midst of those who were casting him out, what a comfort that must have been for Isaac. In verse 26, we continue. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahazah, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So, that we, so we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, let you, uh, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. That you will do us no harm, just as you have not touched just as we have not touched you, that you have done nothing good, uh, done nothing but good, and has sent away, sent you away in peace. Excuse me. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That day, the, um, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, "We have found water." He called out, uh, he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So we see plainly that the Lord has been with you, is what Abimelech says to, um, to Isaac. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So this is our third point for my English nerds. We see God talking in the past. We see the providence of the Lord, not only in the future, God fulfilling the promises that he was going to give him. We see how God is present with him in the present right now. But we also see how God, by evidence through another outsider, looking at the life of Isaac, that he has been with him the whole time, past, present, and future. God is present not just figuratively, but literally. And what this reminds me of is just how Abimelech looked at the life of Isaac. When people look at my life, do they see how Jesus has changed me? Is that what they see? And so again, as, a, as an exercise for you, if you were to look at your own life outside of yourself, would the number one characteristic people see of you is that you're a follower of Jesus? That's a good question for us to ask of ourselves. It's a sobering thought, one that I know that I fail at often. But again, I'm so glad that Jesus saved me and continues to love me despite my messiness. But I'm also glad that we know that God is present as uh, God the Father. We know he's present. We know that he sent his son Jesus. But what did Jesus say that he will give to us as he departs? Holy Spirit. So we know that as followers of, of, of Christ, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And I'm so glad that he did that because that Holy Spirit convicts us and continues to mature us in Christ's likeness. Again, when people look at me, I hope they don't see how great Blake is. I hope they see how great Jesus is. And honestly, it's probably because of how much of a mess Blake is that Jesus still loves him. I hope that's what the people see. And I would ask you the same thing. Take inventory of what people see when they look at your life and be a blessing to them because you point them to the cross. Future promises of God fulfilled 
and then present and past reassurance of the presence of God himself. What a great example of God showing his children of his steadfastness we have here in Genesis 26. Amen? What a great example we have. So as we're reading scripture, as we're wrapping up, anytime you're reading scripture, whether it be as a church family like this, or even when you're by yourself, one great question to ask yourself as kind of a way to to think through the scripture that you're reading is this. What does this teach me about who God is and what he has done? That's a great question to ask. So I think quite plainly, what it shows us is that God is involved. God is loving and caring for his children based on what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 26. It it teaches us that God cares for us enough to even make promises, much less keep those promises. How many times? Every time. He He keeps those promises every time. But most importantly, in this narrative in Genesis 26, what I want you to see is this, that God is present. God is present. And again, the presence of God isn't a means to an end. It is the prize. God's presence is the prize. Not figuratively, literally. God is present, past, present, future. And that was just as true for Abraham in chapter 26 as it is for us today. And how do we know this? Because again, just like I mentioned, we see this in the Gospel of John. These are Jesus' words. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So what does Jesus call the Holy Spirit? The helper. So we get the gift of the Holy Spirit as followers of Jesus. And he helps us. He helps us in convicting us of sin. He helps us in making us look more and more Christ-like. He helps us in learning how to use our words to point people to Jesus, the greatness of the gospel. And he humbles us so that we can point to another, not to ourselves. So for the people in this room, I think, that there's, I think there are three types of people in this room right now that I want to speak to specifically. And I think all of us will fall into one of these three camps. The first is for those of you who call yourself Christians. I really hope that this is a great comfort to you as you read chapter 26, that God is present with you. I hope that's a comfort. And the second group of people are, are maybe some of you who are skeptics. You don't call yourself a Christian. You're still figuring this out. You're not sure. Maybe your spouse drug you here on a Sunday. Maybe you're listening online uh, for whatever reason, and you don't call yourself a Christian. But what I hope is that you're starting to feel like something's missing. I hope you feel that something is missing in your life. Because the good news is, you don't have to feel that feeling much longer. Actually, today is the day where you can feel that feeling go away uh, through being saved and through placing your trust in Jesus. Because we know that when uh, when we accept what Jesus has done on the cross for us, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I hope, I trust that stirring in your heart is the Spirit himself inviting you to believe. But the third group of people that um, I've been talking with some friends that have been grieving me over a long period of time are some of those of you who do call yourself Christians, but your life doesn't look any different from the world. And I try to say that and season these words with as much love and care as I possibly can. But for some of you, those words might sting, and I apologize for that. But I hope that that sting is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because we know that there is a group of people who might call themselves Christians, but when they, talk to, when they see Jesus, he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. 
even though they did all these things in his name. And it, it grieves my heart to think that there might be some people sitting in this room right now who that's the case for you. So if you call yourself a Christian and your, your life doesn't look any different from the world, maybe over the last six months in a quarantine, you stopped going to church for whatever reason, and you stopped going to church, and you stopped fellowshipping with believers, talking about the things of the Lord, your life didn't change at all, other than the fact that you gave up a couple hours on Sunday. You are the people that I'm talking to right now. And again, I, I, I say out of love, I don't want you to feel that way anymore. I want your life to look different because you follow Jesus. I want you to feel different because you follow Jesus. So if you, are, if you call yourself a Christian and you, don't, and you still feel that emptiness, it might be because you're not really a Christian. And I don't say that condemningly. I say that today could be the day that changes. Amen? Today could be the day of salvation. Today can be that day where that changes. I hope that it is. So no matter what camp you fall in, whether you're a Christian, and this is a celebratory text, or if you're not a Christian, or maybe you feel that emptiness inside of you, I hope that does grieve you a little bit. But what I want you to do is don't just stop there. I want you to come talk to me. Talk to someone you trust. Talk to another pastor, somebody. I don't care who you talk to. Talk to someone about it, but don't let that emptiness keep on going any longer. Because I believe that the Holy Spirit might be inviting you today, October 11th, 2020, to come to saving faith of Jesus, maybe after all. Maybe that magic prayer you said when you were eight didn't actually take <laughs> because it didn't mean anything to you at the time. But today it can. I believe the Holy Spirit is stirring in someone's heart, and I hope that you don't let that go away. So today we get to end with uh, these last few verses uh, in, uh, starting in verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, his daughter of uh, Beri and the Hittite to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. What a great way to end the chapter, right? <laughs> uh, one thing I need you to know and keep in mind is that the numbers of verses, the numbers of chapters that we have in Scripture weren't in the original letters, weren't in the original manuscripts that we have. So, um, so those, it's okay that sometimes we'll see this bleed over from chapter to chapter. It, it might actually be better for, for these verses to actually be part of chapter 27 uh, with that, which that's okay. So I, what I'm going to do is entice you to come back next week because we have a little bit of a cliffhanger, okay, to be continued. So I encourage you all to come back next week, hear how, hear how Esau gets mixed up in some of these shenanigans. And I would love for you all to continue to see how we can, again, continue to learn about who God is and what he has done for us who we are and what we should do in light of that. That's what, um, what we get to do as we continue to uh, this study in Genesis. So as we end, let me, um, let, me, uh, let me pray for us.